Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way toward the better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you again. This is Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. Hey, Kira. How's it going? Good. Very well. I feel like Cut. the uh, I feel like Glasgow uh, craziness has finally subsided a little bit, um, yeah. and now everyone's sort of thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you were busy with all of the cop stuff. I was I I was not. I was just like plugging away, doing my normal things, and occasionally tuning in to understand what was going on, enjoying all the selfies of people bundled up in Glasgow and things, but you like, what were you up to? Well, I was busy. I was, I I did not go, although I I had an opportunity to, and was prevented by unvaccinated child concerns, et cetera. Um, I wanted to, but I was really pleased to be working this year with Architecture 2030 around their delegations efforts, including um, they did a 1.5C COP26 communique, which was signed by 75 large firms and organizations um, as a message to governments around the necessity of getting to zero now, you know, to keep 1.5 alive, as it were. So that was exciting. They had an event um, and there was a lot of communication around all of that, which so it was great. That's awesome. I was excited about the communique. If listeners haven't seen it, it's worth it's worth seeing. We we uh, signed on late, but I was happy that we got in there anyway. Uh, it was Absolutely. A, a really great project. So yeah. Well, it was great too that. because it was firms, but all and, we, and we, the firms were really important because that sends a message about the business community. But it was also associations, and those associations really represent you know just a vast amount of the built environment community. Um, both in the U.S. and beyond, we had se- there were several um, international associations as well. So it was great. We were really happy with that and felt like we sent a bit of a message to the extent possible <laughs> in that setting. Yeah. But you know, there have been a lot of I think coming out. There have been a lot of uh, what do you call them? Glasgow half full stories. That's a Joel <laughs> McCower of Green Biz uh, <laughs> reference point, but oh I appreciate God, his yeah. point. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a bad pun, but it's kind of true. Um, but there were good, there were good thing. I mean, the good on the good side, on the half full side, the built environment sector was recognized as a player in emissions, which really represents progress. So that yeah. was great. Yeah, that that is that is great. I'm excited. I hope that that starts to manifest in some useful ways for us. I still think I don't know. We don't talk about this a lot on the show, but it's come up every once in a while that there's this interesting thing that happens in a lot of climate change circles that I've been a part of, and specifically climate solutions circles, um, where buildings really don't get their due. They don't really get recognized as a solution. There's sort of the idea that, well, if all of the energy going into a building is clean, then who cares about the building itself? So let's focus on the energy supply, you know? Right. And then we'll focus on transportation and some other things. Agriculture, whatever the sectors are that, that um, you know, yeah, that are the, all the important ones. Um, and yeah, and so there are those that believe that, um, other than natural gas burning in buildings, uh, we don't really have much of a role to play. Um, and, and, you know, 
not only and I'm, uh, does that kind of um, make us all feel a little bit left out, but I think it's just really uh, bad policy. It's not a great yeah. idea for us to leave out all of these opportunities for uh, efficiency and uh, the ways in which buildings can and need to contribute to resilience around climate issues, et cetera. Yep. We're huge, right? Um, but yeah, yeah. If, for those of you in the built environment world thinking about sustainability, it's it's worth remembering that like, you know, uh, it's it's helpful to get out there every once in a while and remind the world that you're a part of the solution because we, we don't get recognized very often. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because I think that that way of thinking about buildings is just not really it there's such an abdication of leadership opportunity amongst some people in the built environment professions i think because there's all this i mean it's these are service professions so there's a lot of well the client's not asking for it or the client doesn't want it or the client won't pay for it or whatever um, which doesn't mean, mean that we don't need the innovation around those design solutions. It just means that, you know, their structures aren't set up, that those are being demanded maybe at the level we'd like to see. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. not to mention the idea that like, I mean, if we can just make sort of a visual like uh, image in our heads of what the world would look like if architects and engineers only did what the clients asked them to do it would be a very different built world like we we know you're making decisions out there you can't fool us right <laughs> right well and Lindsay, you hit upon the, the critical point too because architects and allied professionals are the ones who are in a position to visualize you know a, a regenerative future that we are the ones that can render visible what that looks like and then and then help make it real you know like that's the that's the potential of this field and there's a lot of other there are a lot of other structural players and we need to get on them i have a lot of i think some of the most depressing news coming out of cop had to, has to do with the lengths we have to go in the finance world um i don't know if you saw it there was a piece michael northrop had a piece in environmental finance recently and he talked about how um this issue of how we've already financed projects that will push us well past 1.5 C, um, we're on our way to two um, degrees and beyond, and it's untenable. I mean, we really, right. finance needs to make a big move. I think we, you know, if the insurance industry could help trigger that leadership and we're waiting. <laughs> <laughs> it is sort of one of those things. I, I really hope someone will call me out for this, but I'm like, okay, insurance people, it's time for your moment in the sun. Totally. <laughs> Get out there. Not exactly the personality that we uh, would expect to be leading on climate, but I'm so ready for it. I'm they're so starting. Ready. They're starting to be glimmers of it. We are seeing it. There's already. There's a lot more talk about, um, you know, what it will be. What what will happen for properties that is sort of brown lined, basically, because they don't have, you know, certain types of high performance features and things like that. So I think we'll get there. Um, but to flip back to the positive, I mean, despite any disappointments about big moves that we might have hoped to see coming from COP. I think that the, the case remains that acting now on climate puts communities and businesses and cities at a strategic advantage. And that's the reality for our community and our clients, owners, um, and everyone that we work with, so. Yeah, totally agree, totally agree. Um, well, I think that is a very good way for us to segue into our guest for today. I'm I'm so excited that we have Julie Hiramoto with us. Welcome, Julie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. 
What a pleasure. I, I am a big fan of the two of you and all the work that you're doing in your respective roles uh, and the platform that you've created with this podcast. So thank you for that. Well, thank you, Julie. We're really, really pleased to have you, especially right at this moment. Um, so I'm gonna give a brief intro and then we'll jump into some questions. Julie is a principal at HKS and the firm-wide director of integration. Um, Julie's active with ULI and with ILFI and IWVI, just to rattle off a bunch of acronyms, which we will get into in a few minutes. And she is a fellow of the American Institute of Architects. She has served in numerous AIA leadership positions, um, including she uh, was chair of AIA's Committee on the Environment National Leadership Group in 2020. And she's on the board committee on climate action and design excellence right now. Um, and in November of this year, she attended the COP26 as part of the AIA delegation, which we will get to talk to her about. So before we get to that, Julie, um, if you can tell us uh, a little bit just to start sort of at the beginning about how and why you got involved in architecture and then sustainability, what has been your path? Yeah, like so many of your other guests, there are multiple inputs. And I was thinking perhaps I could share three stories with you on sustainability and resilience, research and practice and equity to help kind of frame up the conversation. Uh, I remember um, back in high school, I had this assignment to write, you remember the three point thesis and the five paragraph format template, you know, um, I can't remember if I was assigned or I chose the topic of acid rain, but I remember going to the Valdosta City Library and, you know, pulling those big bound volumes of magazines off the shelf, trying to fit them on the copy machine so that I could, you know, copy the scientific articles uh, and then put together a point of view about this. I'm really dating myself, aren't I? Because nobody does that anymore. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember this feeling of horror. I, I was I was really just kind of in this state of shock and awe of how could we as a civilization let this happen? Um, and, and how are we, how, how could we possibly be doing this to ourselves? And the powers that be, the people with all the knowledge and control either couldn't or wouldn't do anything about that. And, and this just couldn't be possible in our, our modern society. And so when I went to architecture school and I studied architecture in undergraduate and graduate school, I, I was really thirsty to learn more and to kind of be a sponge and absorb everything that I could about these topics and what the built environment, um, what the role the built environment had to play within all of that. And um, there was one course in my undergraduate program and, and one course in my graduate program. So, so there, there were limitations there and thankfully, uh, academia is getting much stronger in this and there's definitely much more interest in the current student body. So we're seeing a big change there. So kudos to all of the, the schools and the curriculum for building that up. But so I had to get my knowledge elsewhere. When I entered the professional world, um, I started getting involved with the Urban Green Council in New York City, which is the, uh, the local USGBC chapter. Uh, and eventually joined uh, the programs group, which is a volunteer leadership team that decides, you know, what are the lectures and the conversations that, that group is going to host. So through that, I was able to decide what are the topics that I want to learn about more, uh, where I'm not getting that knowledge, and who are the people uh, within New York City that can help us talk about that in a productive way. And what I love about 
the Urban Green Councils, it was such a diverse group of people with MEP engineers, building facility managers, owners, uh, even folks that worked in the sanitation industry um, and the design team. Uh, so it was really being able to explore all of those perspectives from multiple viewpoints and then taking those great ideas back to my project team at SOM at the time and just asking provocative questions, uh, not from a point of I know better or you know, wanting to challenge the system, but really from a point of view of curiosity um, and trying to understand, well, these sound like great ideas. Why aren't we doing this? There must be you know, something else that we have to overcome that we haven't talked about yet. And how, how do we collectively get, out, get at that as a team? And over time, um, I, I somehow built a reputation as an expert by just asking questions <laughs> and trying to understand things for myself. Uh, so that was really kind of a, a pivotal moment for me when we were sitting around a conference table and somebody looked at me and they said, hey, Julie, so what do you think? And I'm like, I don't know, why are you asking me this question? And they said, you're the expert. And I was like, oh, how did that happen? After so many years of just asking questions and you know, wanting to push our team to experiment and explore more, now I'm the provocateur and the one with all the answers. <laughs> and the second story I'd like to share with your listeners is really around the power of research and coalitions. Around 2008, I had the opportunity to help found um, one of a really exciting um, new paradigm and way of working, the Center for Architecture, Science and Ecology case. This was an academic and professional incubator that was looking to translate technology that was already demonstrated in other industries uh, and bring that to buildings. And, and in that process of not inventing a thing or a process, but adapting it, we were able to rapidly accelerate uh, the integration of next generation, high performance building systems and bridge uh, the chasm of research practice and the day-to-day -day building operations and maintenance. Um, and I think that uh, what was so interesting again about that group was the diversity of perspectives and inputs needed. You know, academic and professional schedules are very different. Um, the priorities and the value are captured in different ways. Uh, and then, you know, the, the nitty gritty of what is the maintenance that's required? Uh, what are the testing and ASTM standards that we need to make sure we're, we're specifying? What is the risk? How do we quantify and talk about the value and the cost? Um, these are all typical roadblocks that get thrown up when you're trying to do something new or different on a project. Uh, and I think after, after several years, it was really rewarding to see us install uh, in the 911 call center in the Bronx, the active modular phytoremediation system, AMPS. Gosh, that's a mouthful. Uh, but it's basically a, a, a green wall system that instead of moving uh, air, the leaves clean the air. We all know that plants are good for our, our indoor environment and they clean the air outside too. But if you move air over the root rhizome, it can clean the air 200 times faster and move all kinds of VOCs. Uh, and so for me, that project, that award-winning project, um, PSAC, is really the, the manifestation of the power of design and beauty and performance and how we can leverage technology solutions for health and well-being, for energy efficiency, for enhanced uh, human and performance outcomes. So that, that was a really exciting and also eye-opening and kind of perspective-shifting experience for me. 
And, and the last story on equity, and, and I think this is kind of a theme in my life. Somebody knocks on the door, I open it and they present an opportunity and I walk through the door. Um, Francis Jane, who is uh, the former director at ILFI of the JUST program, uh, and he's, he's now with the Beneficial State Fund, uh, asked me to join a full day workshop at one of the ILFI annual conferences on the business case for diversity. And um, I had thought about the topic before. I wouldn't say by any means I was an expert, uh, but this opportunity really propelled me on a path of advocacy and activism in thinking about this very challenging and uncomfortable topic of discussion and what, again, the, the opportunity of design is uh, and how we need to walk the walk within our own internal organizations. I, I think what's most interesting about these stories is that um, they're so contradictory to my personal traits. I, Kira, you and Lindsay know me, I'm a planner. And I like to see the path and figure out all the steps and chart how we're gonna get there in a very kind of organized, rigorous and effective manner. And yet none of these things, these opportunities were really planned. Um, the serendipity of all of this just kind of put me on the path that I'm on today. And that's, that's a huge lesson for me because I think I'm, I'm constantly reminding myself if I over-program, if I try to pack too much in, uh, then you don't have time to reflect. You don't have time to absorb or to see other new opportunities. So you know what to say yes to. Uh, and I think that that, um, that lesson is just a product of my, my own existence. Like my brother and I shouldn't even exist. My, my father is of Japanese descent, which is pretty obvious from my last name, but he was born and raised in Peru. My mother was born in China and raised in Taiwan and somehow they met in a hospital in Florida. And my brother and I grew up in, in South Georgia. So <laughs> we're, we're all kind of like this happy accident. Um, and I think that, um, you know, when I joined my HKS family, I've, I've never been uh, a big person for quotes, but the HKS family loves, loves their quotes. And so I have one here uh, by Glennon Doyle, who, who I know is a favorite on this podcast. But she said something um, that was along the lines of, the braver I am, the luckier I get. And, and I think that, that you, some of your other guests have talked about this too, that kind of luck creates itself once you put yourself out there and you take chances and you're open to new opportunities. Julie, I love those stories and, and how connected they are. And that is so powerful. And what that's a great quote. <laughs> that's so inspiring, I think, to anybody at any stage of their career to think about those things. Um, and I, I love that this idea of making time to be able to walk through doors of opportunity when they're presented to you like you did even in even to do things that were unplanned and and not mapped out and a little bit out of your comfort zone and all of that wow that's fantastic um and it actually it's a perfect precursor to this question we like to ask people about if you what you think people should know about entering the architectural profession now, what they should be good at and, and interested in, in addition, of course, to some of the traits and uh, habits that you mentioned in your first in your first answer. Yeah, and, and I love the point that you just made, Kira, because I, I don't think I was born an expert on all of these things. You know, I kind of grew into it by putting myself in those situations and continuing to absorb and learn and test ideas and, and, and grow in that way. 
Uh, and I think that that's so true for the architecture profession. And I think it's something that's really good about the architectural education, right? They, they teach you this thinking, design thinking methodology and process and the, the ability to kind of move away from your own self-doubt and just put yourself out there and try an idea and back it up and present it and see what happens. Uh, and I think the beautiful thing about our profession is that it is so broad and wide open. I mean, you, you can literally do anything you like. I mean, those stories touch on some of the biggest challenges that human society is trying to solve for right now. Um, and, and all of that can happen, you know, through the built environment. Um, I, I've reinvented my career um, so many times and you don't actually have to change your employer to do that. So I, I had five very different jobs in the 12 years that I was at SOM New York uh, without ever having to learn a new phone number or address or a new team. Uh, and again, at HKS, uh, since I've been there uh, since the beginning of 2016, I've um, been a project manager, I've led the New York City office and now as director of integration, and I'm about to embark on my fourth role there as we build up our innovation sector. So I, I think that, you know, when it comes to our profession, everybody has the opportunity to choose their own adventure and chart their own path based on their skill set, their personal passions and their knowledge and, and what they can bring to the table, because it's going to take all of us. Okay, so now we get to talk about um... I don't know, the work that, that you have, that this has brought you into, Julie, which I'm so excited about, um, and in particular, um, what it means for you to be working at HKS today. So um, can you tell us a little bit about, about your work and about your title in particular, this director of integration thing? Like, what does it mean? Why, why do you have that title? I'm excited. Yeah, what does that mean? You know, I was, I was telling our chief information officer the other day, how did I get on this list? You know, I get all these emails, these spam emails from software companies and people, you know, she's like, well, architecture is a problem. They think that they're, you're like the IT architect uh, and totally. director of integration doesn't help either. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so the frame and the perspective uh, changes things a lot. But um, back to HKS and, and my actual role, um, you know, before I joined HKS, um, someone much wiser and had, who had been at the firm much longer decided that it would be a smart thing to start investing in subject matter expertise beyond plain vanilla AEC roles. So architecture, interior design, urban design, structural engineering, any kind of engineering. Um, and we started building a cohort of subject matter experts uh, that include nurses, anthropologists, data scientists, computer programmers, former hospital administrators, economists, performance analysts, like the list goes on and on and on. Um, but the thinking there is that um, not only are these people brilliant and doing amazing research and publishing and speaking worldwide on these topics in their own area of expertise, but they're helping us to influence our clients and go further upstream from the building, um, helping them understand their real estate portfolios, how they work, um, how they live, what should be in the RFP and what kind of cultural change is necessary in their organizations that need to happen before we can write a program, send out an RFP, 
get some people to design a building and build it. Um, and so that role is really about connecting across um, subject matter expertise, across practices and market sectors uh, and marketplaces so that all of those component parts um, are much greater uh, than just the sum of them. One plus one equals five. Uh, and, I, and I think that um, I, I'm doing that at an internal level. I'm doing that as, at an external level too, also thinking about how, um, how we're finding the right partners and collaborators in our work, uh, whether it's research or, or a particular project. Uh, and, and this is a, a challenge, you know, as our industry gets more complex and the problems that we're solving before become hairier, um, how do we find that right expertise and, and how do project teams understand that it's out there and available to them? I think mm -hmm. as, as any organization gets bigger, you know, you have to break it down into smaller buckets to manage, right? To, hold, to have accountability and build culture and relationships. Uh, but when you start to break things down by practice or geography or discipline, then you develop those silos. And so it's about building up those silos again and figuring out how to make the most of the, the whole collective as opposed to one thing at a time or just one thing. Oh, that is super fascinating. It's also fascinating to think about how your role isn't as explicitly around, like that is not just about sustainability, although we all talk about how integrated design and sort of, you know, the integration of professions is so critical to our work. Like, do you, do you think about it that way as being like only a partial Venn diagram of sustainability? Yeah, I, I think it's much bigger than that. I mean, if, if we, if, if humanity kind of makes the earth so untenable that we can't live on it, then none of these other things matter. But I think that, um, you know, we, we have, we, the value comes in this kind of integrated systems thinking approach, right? And, and how, we're, how we're connecting those dots and breaking down those silos and from team to team, right? How are we sharing our knowledge and building upon the work that other people have done instead of constantly starting from zero and reinventing the wheel? We don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I love it. That's awesome. Um, okay, well, thank you for demystifying that. Um, we want to also hear a little bit more about what you're most proud of accomplishing in your work life. Like what, what at this point would you say um, has been a highlight? Gosh, well, um, there's so many. Maybe, maybe I'll just pick um, pick one client and one project. I'm currently working with Texas Women's University. Uh, the chancellor and president there, Dr. Corrine Faton, is just um, such an impressive woman. And uh, we worked on the master plan there, and you can you can see it published on the TW website. Um, but really thinking about how do we create uh, a community that embodies their values that takes full advantage of the 106 acre municipal golf course that they have you know, decommissioned and are folding into their campus growth plan, um, that has a car-free, very walkable core that integrates um, health and well-being and sustainability into every aspect of the master plan and does it in a way that um, holds up the the justice and equity and citizenship values that are core to um, TWU. And that's been just such an amazing process with uh, a really um, enlightened client team. It's, it's been such a pleasure. 
And I think, you know, it, it, it happens on the project level and it also happens in industry organizations. So um, another master plan project that we did uh, in St. Petersburg for Tropicana Field, which is one of the major league baseball stadiums, um, the International Well Building Institute was launching the well community standard. Um, and we had an opportunity because we were working for the city of St. Petersburg, so a public client, um, to have our project team and our client join the pre-pilot working group and really help IWBI think about, um, you know, how the standard applies to community organizations, um, public entities, uh, and what how that would be different from a private development uh, and be a part of, of writing those standards. So I, I think that um, we also, in addition to that, brought a larger HKS team to the table and, and help think about it from an international perspective. You know, what are the deal breakers? If, if we have a mandatory baseline, we'll make it impossible to participate in India or in China. Uh, and, and how we need to zoom out a little bit and think about the goal, but not be so prescriptive in the process that you're barring entry to the table for a significant group of the population. Yeah, and I mean that this is this is something that I've been curious about for you, and you talked about it a little bit with Urban Green, but like, um, it, I don't know if you want to say anything else about what has made you make that decision to get involved in so many, uh, you know, industry organizations. You really take the time to structure these things in your work, and like, you know, you it's clear that you see that bigger impact. Um, you like is is that just something is that just who you are as a person is that why you take the time to do that work is, is there something that you feel like you get out of it yeah I don't know that's a great question Lindsay I think personally selfishly I do them and I make time to do them because I learn from them um, and mm -hmm. that's you know where I can soak up new perspectives and knowledge and, and learning but I yeah. also think that you know we have to work together um, and the fastest way for us to do that is to build upon each other. So whether that's within one organization or within one discipline or within one industry, um, we're all going to get there faster if we can, you know, take the cheat sheet or the cliff notes from somebody else and start at chapter five instead of at the ground floor every single time. Julia, I love that. Um, and, it, you know, speaking of what you soak up at these things and making time for things. You just got back recently from COP26. You are part of the AIA's delegation, as I mentioned in your intro. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. So for those, I, I didn't even say at the beginning of this, COP26 is the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. And I should probably not use all these little uh, shorthands so glibly. Um, and this was AIA's first official delegation at COP. And I just was hoping you could talk with us a little bit about what you saw, what you heard, and how that was for you. It was completely overwhelming, but such an honor to be there. I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to process and synthesize um, because it, it, was, it was a whole lot to take in. Um, it was incredibly immersive. It was frenetic and totally exhausting. And to add to that too, you know, we've forgotten or our bodies have forgotten how to do business travel. I used to be really good at it. And I took two two-week trips separated by a week uh, in the last month or so. And I am just completely worn out and knackered now. <laughs> I never used to suffer from jet lag before. 
But I, some, some big takeaways. I, I think um, the United States of America is back at the table. They actually had a hashtag, which was all in at COP26. Um, they were making such a huge show of, you know, recovering from um, the former president removing us from the Paris Agreement to say, we've not only signed back on, but we're, we're back here in full force. There were um, 18 US senators there, three presidents, former presidents and vice presidents. So Biden, Obama and Gore were all there uh, and eight cabinet ministers. So not, and that's just at the national level with all of the, the policy and administrative support that comes with that. But then there were governors and mayors and city council members. And that was just really, um, really exciting and encouraging to see. Um, the youth, our global youth um, and indigenous people were there. Um, they had seats at the table. The question now remains to me of if we're actually gonna really listen to them and leverage their ideas and their experience and tactics. I, I think the urgency that they so successfully communicate is something that all of us could learn from and, and take a page from their book. Um, and we've got a lot of things to figure out ahead of us. You know, there, there are real fundamental challenges that need to get solved. You know, one of the talking points was that the rich countries are trying to get together commitments of $100 billion annually to distribute to countries that don't have those funds available for the kind of infrastructure and resilient support that's going to be required uh, and the resources and the programs. But and, and we're almost there. But even if they had that commitment of the funding, there's a plumbing challenge that needs to be sorted out, which is how do you distribute those funds? How do you get them where they need to be in a timely manner? We had all this um, funding allocated in the US for COVID and not all of it was distributed, right? So that this is a this is a global challenge that's happening at multiple levels and how can we how can we streamline that? And the last anecdote I'll, I'll share with you is just um, I thought it was really ironic that um, we were demonstrating the scarcity of global resources through the proxy of chairs in the blue zone. Chairs were the most valuable commodity. And <laughs> you know, really? Thing, oh yeah. <laughs> so, so the thinking was, you know, we're in these COVID times and we got to keep everybody safe because here we are convening people from all across the globe and locking them in, you know, a conference center together. So we've got to maintain physical distancing. I mean, I got, I got a COVID test every day and had to report it to the National Health Services. And so they thought, okay, let's, 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 let's physically manifest, I, I hate calling it social distancing, so I call it physical distancing, mm -hmm. by taking away two of every three chairs, right? <laughs> then the chairs are kind of spaced out, right? At the, at the dining table, um, in, the, in the, the social areas, in the, in the, the, um, the, the convening halls, but guess what? We're still people who need to eat lunch, who need to sit down and take <laughs> a break, who, who need to collaborate and talk to each other. So there were people sitting on the floor, sitting on the tables, moving the chairs. Oh my God, don't move the furniture, you know? I mean, it was, <laughs> it was quite, um, it, it, was, it was just interesting to see how that played out. You know, it's like, okay, here's the, the irony, scarcity at, at at COP26 was chairs. <laughs> yeah. 
I love that. That's very funny. Um, and I, I'm so envious of all that you saw and heard, and I love hearing about it. Um, it's great. And I, I have to say, All In at COP26 makes me feel optimistic. It really does. <laughs> it's so great. There's so many good things about all of that. And I, of course, yeah, anyway, it's great to hear all of it. Um, so I just want to ask though, I mean, and I didn't mention HKS was a signatory to the 1.5 C COP26 communique. So thank That's you right. for that. Um, which, you know, and I, so obviously you and HKS see the role of architects in climate action. And can you talk a little bit about that? Like what you, what, what that, what the complexion of that is for you? Yeah. So I think one of the greatest things about COP and the buildup, um, has been that you know as as an industry we've succeeded in getting the general public's and the world leaders understanding that to recognize that buildings and the built environment are a critical and necessary part of climate e equity and healthy solutions for people you know um, buildings are responsible for nearly 40% of our global carbon emissions humans especially americans spend about 90% of our time indoors uh, and two thirds of the buildings that are, are gonna be standing when we hit this point of reckoning with the climate crisis, they're already built. Uh, and so there's a huge opportunity with existing buildings. So the opportunity and the pressure now is, okay, now that everybody's watching this, what are we gonna do with this leadership platform? And this is our time and we've been handed the baton and it, it's really time to start sprinting now. Could not agree more. It's great to hear it in such stark terms like that too. I think it's really focused and clear. And I mean, the opportunity is is very is vast. It really is. Um, we have huge opportunity, I think, to be leaders and influencers in this field too. You know, I, mm -hmm. it kind of boggles my mind that people on social media are earning a million dollars a year by opening boxes or, you know. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing, but people are watching. Oh, weird. You know, it's like, <laughs> Bizarre. Why are yeah. architects talking about something that fuels their passion? And then we're getting paid a million dollars to just create a YouTube video. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate what you do to be that sort of influencer. I appreciate your communications um, orientation, I would say. Of course, I noticed that as a person who pays attention to communications. And that is so much a part of this. Um, the work that you do in architecture is often um, focused on trying to change the industry while still needing to play a part in it, um, being part of the system while changing it. And that's complex. Can you talk about how you balance that? Yeah, it, it's not as sexy and glamorous as people make it out to be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think being an agent of change is really tough. Um, it's physically and mentally taxing and oftentimes a really underappreciated job. And, and I, if you think it's hard to be the person that's changing, you know, that we're asking you to change and you're like, oh, that's too hard. How uncomfortable do you think it is for the person who's advocating for that change, who's cajoling and coaching that change to realization? But I mean, you don't do it unless you love it, right? And I love it. It gets me so excited. And I think every little step forward feels really great and pushes me to want to do more, to push harder. We just need 
more bigger steps and more collectively faster. But I think, you know, the beautiful thing about systems and, you know, the world that we live in is that they're constantly changing and adapting. And that's what makes the work so interesting. These new challenges pop up, you know, week after week, and we have to figure out how do we deal with that? Or is that the most important thing that I need to be focusing on right now? Or do I need to stay the course and really solve this other thing first? Mm, Yeah. I love that. It is, it is a beautiful thing about systems. Um, thank you for that. And it actually, it's a very good transition to one of our last questions for you, Julie, which is about uh, where you think, where did you think we would be um, in the 2020s as, you know, in the work that we do and, you know, more specifically kind of where do you see the major progress areas? So like, as you're doing that pulse check for yourself or maybe for the broader community, where are we doing well? Where are we not doing well? Yeah, I I think the awareness has shifted, right? You can't unsee or unknow a lot of these things uh, anymore, whether it's racial injustice or, you know, the fires and the flooding and the the drought that's happening all over the world. Um, And so we're all aware now, but then what are we collectively going to do about it? And I think that the dire need and the the personal impact that some of us are feeling is really fueling this ability to collaborate and innovate in a way that we've never done before. And, and COVID proved that we could do it, right? When, when everybody's focused on one thing and that's the most important thing, we do amazing things. So let's, let's translate that same hyper-focused you know, prioritization to the climate crisis, which is slower, um, but it's, it's not that slow anymore, you know, um, and, and, and it starts to manifest itself um, in maybe a less acute way than, than COVID did, but the impact, the total impact is going to be so much greater. Uh, and so, so this is our opportunity, right? What are, what are we going to do together? And to make sure that we do it collectively so that nobody gets left behind, because Climate change doesn't respect any geopolitical boundaries. They don't care how much money you make. It's going to impact us all, right? This is um, human civilization and society as we know it that will bear the brunt of this collectively. Mm. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, Okay. Well, that is inspiring in of itself, but we're going to wrap up with our last question, Julie, which is uh, who you're most inspired by these days in terms of leaders anywhere out in the world. I'm hoping, I'm imagining coming back from COP26, you probably have some good people. So tell us about them. I have three great ones um, from COP and and pre-COP. Samantha Power, who is the former UN ambassador and now the administrator of USAID, hosted a panel discussion in the US Pavilion called um, Our Climate Future is Female. Isn't that a great title? Yes. Yeah. And one of her panelists was this amazing young woman from Sudan. Her name is Nizreen El Saim. And she is chair of the UN Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change. I didn't even know that this group existed. But, and I, I, you should invite her on the podcast because I won't be able to do her story justice. I'll just say that she was absolutely inspirational. And I can't even pretend to truly understand the adversity that she has to overcome on a day-to-day basis in her part of the world to do the things that she's doing. But um, 
her stories about how the youth are not being taken seriously, how they're being marginalized or excluded are truly universal. So she shared this one story about how she was supposed to be a speaker at, you know, day one and day two was where all the world leaders convened. And she was supposed to speak in that plenary discussion and the security guard wouldn't let her into the room. And uh, she said, oh no, I'm a speaker. And he said, I'm sure you're a speaker, but probably not at this room. You must have the wrong room because this is the world leaders forum. She's like, no, no, I'm a, I'm a speaker at this, you know, the world leaders forum. And he wouldn't believe her. So she had to pull out her phone and show him a selfie with her and Boris, um, you know, to prove to him that she was allowed to come into the room and that she, she had something to say. Uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, that's, that's a stark lesson that we could, we could, take back to us and in, in all the enthusiastic young people in our lives. Um, also an incredibly impressive person uh, that was speaking at the REBA uh, pre-COP event at the Built Environment Summit, Maria Smith, uh, Director of Sustainability and Physics. Isn't that an off awesome title? Um, at Bureau Happold and, and also a REBA counselor. Uh, Smith was the editor of the REBA Built for Environment report. Uh, that was um, published in partnership with Arch Architects Declare, and they were the co-hosts of the summit. And really talking about what, what can drive us to zero carbon emissions. And they were a central part of the pre-COP two-day summit in London. And what I thought was so amazing was they continually reminded us of the need to do this together, to not leave anybody behind. And you know, when we're talking about energy efficiency and embodied carbon, and species biodiversity, let's not forget that. Um, or when we're talking about regulations and accountability and, you know, okay, that's the stick, we gotta move faster, but don't forget real human needs and economics of fuel poverty that's existing today. And how can we help those people also while, you know, wielding the stick at other folks? Um, so how really can we ensure that we don't leave equity out of these systems, solutions, conversations? And that was just, um, Reba is doing a much better job of talking about it, I think, than we are here in the U.S. So we've got stuff to learn there. And, and then finally, um, Julianne Polanco. Julie is someone that I've been getting to know over the last year with Zoom book club calls. Um, and Lindsay, you're a part of that, so you know her well. Um, and, and she is the California State Historic Resources Officer and also a co-founder of the Climate Heritage Network. And she was telling us about, um, you know, historic resources and, and the Climate Heritage Network that she founded. And it just didn't even dawn on me um, the significance of that until I was on the ground in Glasgow and saw the amazing organization that's been built up and fortified over just two years of existence. It's an international group that prioritizes existing buildings, uh, cultural heritage, indigenous populations, and the, the robustness of the deep and the meaningful relationships, the sophistication of the topics that these groups were discussing from climate science, science to you know, community engagement and you know, respecting our history and our elders. And Climate Heritage Network was everywhere I went uh, and in numbers. It wasn't just, you know, Julie and one other person. Um, so I think it just underscored for me the importance of existing buildings and indigenous people and how critical both of those are to our collective climate solution and how, 
you know, it, they need to be part of the main conversation, not something separate on the side, but just two years. And, and they were able to build together this amazing network. So uh, we yeah. can all move faster. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can. And, and yeah, I totally agree. Julianne is an amazing inspiration. So thank you for giving her a shout out. I hope people can check out the Climate Heritage Network I just did recently. And I was blown away. Um, okay, well, um, that is a very good note for us to end on. Thank you so much, Julie, for being with us. It's, I don't know, there's just so much that you bring to every conversation. And I'm so, so genuinely touched and, and thankful for that. So uh, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for including me. Great to yeah. have you. Yeah, uh, it's been so much fun. Okay, well, that is it for us this week on the Design the Future podcast. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week.